Hi guys, this is Andy McDonald from the Informed Performance Podcast, and I hope you had a great 2019 and also a nice Christmas. For the last episode of this year, I have Dave Alred as my guest on today's episode. Dave, if you haven't heard of him, is a performance coach that helps athletes with skills and in particular performing them under pressure in the competitive arena. Dave has worked with the likes of Johnny Wilkinson, Johnny Sexton, Luke Donald, and more recently Francesco Molinari, amongst lots of big sporting organisations globally. In today's episode, we're going to dive deep into Dave's philosophies and also approach to both coaching and athlete skill development. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please hit subscribe to show your support and receive episodes as soon as they are released. Without further ado, here is the episode, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Dave. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on to chat. I used to work in a gym in Bristol about 10 years ago that you remember of, so it's quite funny to now, 10 years later, be on the phone to you from the other side of the Atlantic. To begin with, can you just explain your background of how you got into performance coaching through to what you're doing in this present day? Um, well, it, it's, it, it kind of led, um, I, uh, as you know, I was a teacher first. And then uh, um, I was actually quite frustrated how kids didn't reach their potential. Um, and at the same time, I started coaching um, after I finished playing. I started coaching Bath um, and got involved with Bristol. And then out of the blue, um, I, uh, Stuart Barnes and John Webb were my first sort of kicking people. But it was much more than that. Then Rob Andrew got in touch um and uh, he used to come down to bristol and then at the same time i was involved with actually then the wallabies for the 95 world cup and a couple of a rugby league team um and my job changed in education sort of fortunately that i had a big i could have i could still have two hol- school holidays but i could take them when i like and I, I, I took that block of, of December, January out and then used that to start coaching. And then I went with England um, 95 for the World Cup. The game was still amateur then. Um, so I had to get time off, you know, and, and so on. And then at the end of that, the game sort of waddled into professionalism with Rob Andrew and... Um, Newcastle Falcons and I I went with Rob to Newcastle and at the same time I signed a sponsorship deal with Adidas who supported me to do a PhD so it sort of um I sort of sort of kind of drifted in um but once you look at kicking and it's really interesting if you ask any kicker when he's kicking well he's also playing well and 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 um, I was really lucky to have Stuart Barnes and Jonathan Webb as my first sort of protege, first two, because they were very intelligent, very smart. Uh, we had a lot of discussions about coaching and use of metaphors and all sorts of things. And it was a sort of coaching. Uh, and we, we, we did some things that... Uh, you know what were really revolutionary then about kicking into nets and using cricket nets early in the morning and all sorts of things like that which really have stood the test of time um and then 
once I'd sort of got in, got into that very quickly, I was asked to do other things. And then it became right now, let's look at performance. How can we actually get this better? And it was more open-ended, obviously still with the kicking. Um, and then 97, I was lucky enough to be selected to go on the Lions tour of South Africa. And that gave me a massive insight into performance. I had some very good people that I was working with and some good players. And then on the back of that, um, I, I signed with England when we came back from the Lions tour and sort of stayed with them till whatever it was, 2000 and something or other. Seven, uh, five, six or something like that. Six, 2005, sorry, 2005. So I had uh, 12 years with them. I did three World Cups. Um, but all the time I got involved in mental side of preparation and looked at how people learn and how, how you shift mindsets prior to games and all sorts of things. And at the same time, I was doing my PhD at Loughborough, and that was probably the best bit of action research you could do. So I was studying and practicing and working all at the same time. Um, it was pretty tough, actually, but um, I came out the other end uh, infinitely better than I was when I started the PhD. Um, and then it went from there. And then we had a, an experiment with a, a, a lady golfer, Melissa Reed, just try to prove that actually if you throw everything at somebody, you know, talent isn't enough on its own. And that was proved and she's turned pros. I think she's still on the LPGA tour. And then I started coaching in soccer and I went to Watford and a few other bits and pieces. And then out of the blue, um, I was contacted by Luke Donald and then I worked with him. Um, and then I was actually, Martin Johnson asked me to go back to England um, and, and that's it basically. So I still work with, um, George Ford, ironically, and Johnny Sexton in the Northern hemisphere. And now, um, I'm working with Francesco Molinari. This will be my starting my end of my third year with, with Fran. Um, and I've got a couple of golfers, well, probably four golfers now in Australia. And now I'm doing the Queensland Reds. So I sort of commute to do that um, and and uh, writing another book. The unthinkable of writing a second book. Well, it, what, what happens when you it, – it's quite interesting, actually. When I wrote the first book, I thought, never again. Um, but you actually get better at writing it um, on the second time. You learn a heck of a lot. But if anybody is involved in any form of profession or professional development, I cannot – uh, recommend writing a book highly enough not in terms of getting it published if you don't want to but actually justifying what you do yeah and I had to write chapters on uh, all sorts of things where I you know th this was what I do and this is why I do it but to have to explain that to somebody else really it, it, it's a fantastic reflection a professional reflection on where you are now. Um, and in the same way I sort of demand that players always improve, I demand that of myself as well. So I look at ways of coaching that are more effective, uh, potentially accelerate learning more effectively, but at the same time, 
still give somebody the, the ability or um, the, the, the uh, confidence to be able to perform under pressure. And you obviously work with people a lot psychologically. Do you look at their biomechanics and the kind of the more physical attributes of their skills as well? Um, I, I, I look at their body movements. Um, like, for example, with, with Francesco at the moment, um, uh, Dennis Pugh, who, who is a very, very experienced um, swing coach, he does the swing and I sort of work with him, but, but I, I, I try and look holistically. So I look at posture because posture indicates mindset. Um, posture is the degree of front footedness, all of that. And, and I've, I've, you know, even, even with England working with the fast bowlers uh, with Kevin Shine, we were looking very much at body language and how the mind and the body is a continuum. So it's actually quite difficult to separate it. And I do have concerns of sometimes this silo mentality where somebody comes in and does the biomechanics, but it's sort of done in isolation. And, and, and what might be potentially biomechanically sound actually is not a good, a good way for that individual to adopt because mentally it, it puts him a bit askew so I think you know Dennis and I work together and I try and make sure that nothing that I'm asking Fran to do in terms of posture and and sort of approach to the ball and he's setting himself up uh, mentally actually cross swords with what Dennis wants technically and ironically um, they are very very parallel and when I have discussions with Dennis we actually are after the same thing and you obviously work with different sports and of course they're they're different skills or their movements um i'm sure it's always athlete or context specific but is there a process that you follow to deconstruct the skill or the athlete themselves to then coach their improvement um no i, I don't go that way around because i find that that actually messes up the jigsaw too much and and and, and you have to remember i'm usually sort of evolve with the athlete so i'm working with james cook at the moment who is a pentathlete and you know so we looked at the mindset of swimming and ironically i know this sounds really ridiculous but trying to look at posture in the pool because it's a 200 meter swim um 100 meters you can you can actually get your posture really good in the water and be quite majestic and out. But 200 meters is a long haul to do that. So we looked at ways of trying to get the efficiency of posture, but also be economical with a swim so we can actually hold it for the four lengths. And then we find out that in the Olympics in Tokyo, it's going to be in a short course pool. That means there's going to be seven turns. So we, you know, we're making a big effort on turns now to make sure that we can we can gain some some time off the wall. Um, and then I looked at how he shoots and his posture and his alignment for shooting. Um, and it, it just sort of, you know, it's a more more a question of, well, hang on, how about trying this rather than saying you should be doing this and let them experience it. And, and, you know, hopefully if you get it right, then they're saying, oh, you've got here. Yeah, that feels much more stable. Um, 
and and then and then go from there but i i with all all the players at some stage i try and and get them writing with me an affirmation about what they are what they're about and and so on and it's something that um i don't think we do enough of um at all um and it's a good way of a player reviewing himself to himself and um you know it's 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 really taken advantage of the power of language which is very underutilized as far as coaching is concerned i believe i mean it's not surprising but it sounds like you're learning as much about the athlete as the athletes trying to learn about their desired skill oh yes i i mean it's it is a two-way street i mean there is um the i think the days of the athlete talking uh, sorry the, the, the coach talking to the athlete and the model is the coach is above and the arrow goes down to the athlete i don't believe it works like that i think the athlete and the coach are the two corners of the base of a triangle and there's an interaction and they both look at the athlete's performance as a third party and i find that that is the most uh, fertile way to go about it that that there is a sort of a discussion on oh, how about this try this well let's have a go at this the reason why etc cetera, etc cetera. and then both the coach and the athlete buy into it and 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 really give it a go that's really refreshing um how do you go about deconstructing the athlete psychologically you've mentioned um that you get them to kind of give a statement of affirmation um what other tools do you use to kind of understand how they can improve psychologically yeah you know i um i don't really use tools and i i i'll tell you i'll give you an example um sometimes in sports science or coaching or anything people want to know a formula or a fix or you know a, a, a coach will come to and say have you got a good drill um for getting players to run straight for example in rugby you know and, and i'll help them i said well you know it's it's actually quite difficult because the pressure forces them to go across the pitch so you actually get them to run back against the grain and it feels like they are but in fact they're running straight and you know we talk a little bit about that and so on. but what worries me is everybody wants a quick fix and there's a guy that i work with in australia who who is a really really good director of sport and and i'm involved with him and we're looking at coaching education and often coaches particularly young coaches and i and i understand how difficult it is but they often go okay we get a group of kids we line them up we tell them what we're going to do and so on and so on and i i completely disagree with that now i i believe so if you had a group of uh, young kids playing soccer and they say right we want to learn some skills okay the natural thing to do is right we'll do some keepy uppies some passing some one touch and blah 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 and then we'll go into a game i don't accept that i think you play just get them playing and the coaching will come to you it'll be pretty obvious the deficiencies that you see and then you zone in on that area so it's a bit it's a bit more prescriptive than that so i look at the player operating and i watch him and i ask questions and so on and i observe what's happening and then i make a suggestion 
You know, I, I don't have an analytical tool because I don't think they work. Because what I, it's a bit like, um, you know, if, if, if you go to the doctors, okay, the doctor will look at you. And, and I reckon that probably really good GPs, almost as you walk in the room, they'll say, well, this guy's got X, Y, Z or, you know, and, and he's pretty much right. But the SE will do some tests because we're actually talking about somebody's health here. And then um, and then nine times out of 10, it's it's confirmed. But it's that gut feeling. I, I would rather, instead of having a specific analysis, I would rather see something that is a very easy win to start with. And, and, and you know, Fran wouldn't mind telling you, I'm sure, that one of the things with Fran is is absolutely um, one of the best in the world, tea to green. But he, he just wasn't scoring enough. And when you analyze it, it was proximity to the pin. But when you look at the pin placements, particularly on the PGA Tour and in majors, they're actually very difficult. So one of the things we did straight away was actually work on the short game. In other words, we, we know we're going to miss the pin now if we start attacking it. We need to have a short game. So we spent a lot of time on a short game to almost give him insurance so he can attack the pins more. And then the next stage was to get him to have more of an aggressive attitude because it's already well us talking about attacking the pin. But when you're faced and you look up and you just see the flag and it looks like there's no distance behind the flag at all, the natural thing to do is to go to the front of the pin and hope that it goes it goes close. Whereas in fact, you know, if you say I want to get three uh, three yards from the pin, your actual target is six yards because there's three yards behind it as well. Um, but we, you know, in in the heat of battle, we tend not to appreciate that. So those are, that's the sort of thing. So it's rather let them play, let them get on with it, observe everything, and then look for some, some uh, if you like, wins on the periphery that gives him confidence or her confidence in what you're doing and, and then go from there. Yeah. And you can layer on the complexity or the specifics afterwards. Absolutely, yeah. And, and often when, they, uh, w- when you've done a couple of bits and pieces or you've done a couple of good practices, I, you know, m- most athletes and uh, rugby players who really want to progress very quickly open up to you as a coach that's there to help them without making any judgment about their ability or whether they're going to be in the team and all the rest of it is to the areas that they, they know they need help in. Um, sometimes I find that uh, players spend quite a lot of time disguising the areas they need help in uh, so that they make sure they get selected. I'm aware you've got, from listening to you talk before, I'm aware you've got quite clear views on the differences between uh, training and practice. Would you be able to kind of elaborate on this? Oh, golly, yes. I mean, that's one of my big bugbears that actually, if you if you analyse the, um, the behaviour that people adopt when they're training, it, it very often bears no resilient, no resemblance at all to the match performance. So I spend a lot of time working out what match behavior is and then seeing how many times I can replicate that. 
uh, during the week. Now, it, you know, different sports, it, it varies. Um, some sports you're able to go even more intense than match behavior. Um, other sports is quite difficult either because of the physicality that somebody might get injured. So Aussie rules is a good case in point. It's quite difficult to play full on contact um, other than around the ruck area or the scrapping um, because you don't want people jumping into each other and, and all the rest of it. Um, rugby has its limitations as to how much you can do, um, how much full on contact you can do and so on. And people do get injured in training in both of those sports, but you want to try and uh, reduce that as, as much as possible. Um, in golf, you know, that this the repetition, you know, is, is not the answer. Uh, a lot of people get frustrated that, you know, they hit loads and loads of balls and they don't get the result they want. So they go and hit even more balls, which actually consolidates the, 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 the very issue that's actually um, holding them back, i.e. the ability to deal with one shot, one opportunity. And, and, and that's, that needs to be replicated in, in training. Um, so I, I've sort of come up with the concept of repair training match, and that was a big part of one of the reasons I wrote the book on the pressure principle. That and language were the two areas that I felt were, were burning beacons of neglect in people's development. Um, so that's one of the reasons, other than sort of reflecting um, on my own practice as, as to why I wrote the book. And I've heard you talk before about um, something that you've coined the ugly zone. Um, can you tell us about that and kind of what that entails? Well, it, it's funny, actually, because on reflection, and, and several people have said it, you know, you know, why are you calling it the ugly zone? You know, perhaps that's the wrong, the, the wrong word. Um, but I, I thought about it and, and I, and it's become ugly. Um, it is, it is what it is. And it started off with basically in, in rugby uh, with goal kickers that um, when something is just out of reach. So, for example, um, it was sort of really born. I, I used to spend a lot of time, uh, obviously, coaching with Wilkinson. And although people said, oh, we spent hours and hours and hours and hours kicking, I said, no, we might have spent hours and hours together, but we weren't always kicking. Some of the times we were telling jokes, actually some really good jokes as well, um, if I remember. But the other thing was we're sort of experimenting or pushing the limits of what training is and what practices. And one of the things we, we do, that, that spiral kicking that's will hopefully come back at some stage into rugby is a very, very difficult kick um, to, 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 um, uh, to catch. Um, and it's actually quite challenging to execute. But one of the ways to learn it is to kick a low spiral, which is really, really challenging. But if you can do that, then it's actually quite easy uh, for you to be able to kick um, a, a, a full-on spiral. It's, it's easier to kick a high kick than it is to kick a low kick. So we spend a lot of time kicking, and we used to kick um, to each other under a crossbar, and, th and that's quite ugly. Uh, I, it's difficult because 
you want to kick it low, but you still got to get the ball to spiral. So it's it's a quite a complex thing, and it and it and it and it works just simply um, through implicit learning. You just keep doing it, and then one day we decided, okay, look, the the, the crossbar is getting too easy. Why don't we try and hit the post protectors, which were much lower? And of course, that became really ugly. And you would do a really good kick, and it would miss the top um, by a foot or two. But that was out. You know, that was it. So it was it was a miss. Um, and then it became really difficult to get it to clip the 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 the, the top of the post protector, and that was the ugly zone. That's the zone where learning takes place. Um, and, and I've coined that. A lot of people now use it. But I actually say that it's such a good place to be that you should smile when you're in it. And, of course, you can imagine some of the expletives that come back to me, you know, saying, yeah, right. Um, but it's, um, it, it, is, it is important that people realize that the area in which you can't match your intention is the area that learning goes on. And the interesting thing is that if you really mentally commit to something, okay, and you don't quite match your intention, the brain still learns. So it's not, you know, I'm trying really hard with this flop shot and I've only got two out of, 50 attempts in the target that I want. So therefore, I've wasted 48 shots. No, you haven't. If you mentally committed, did your pre-shot routine and really visualized the shot and went for it, but didn't quite make it, the brain is still learning. And that's why skills don't necessarily have a progressive linear um, progression. They're up and down. You know, you go up and and and, and you must have heard or in, in your own experience where you try and try and try and do something and it's just not working. And then one day you get up and you do it and you just do it. And you think, well, what was all the fuss about? Well, the reality is you, you actually learn while you're while you're asleep. The brain suddenly goes, OK, right, we'll make the connections because the guy's going to keep on doing it. I mean, it's not quite as straightforward, but that's in essence what actually happens. So it's really important that people mentally commit to do things, all right? And just because they can't match their intention, unfortunately, in this sort of microwave world of instant everything, including gratification, too many people give up too early. So I'm saying let's promote this area called the ugly zone and, and let's have a few, you know, a little bit of banter with it, but, you know, when somebody's struggling, you know, and they finish the session, you know, there's nothing better than me here and say, cool, that was ugly today. And then they hopefully would say, but I really enjoyed it. Do you see that um, as athletes get older, they're exposed to that less? You know, when you're a kid, uh, you've got lots of neuroplastic changes and you're trying things out and kids tend to be more open to trying challenges and having a go. Do you see that more experienced athletes get into that zone less as they go on? Well, they do because it's fundamentally it's just the fear of failure. And I think, you know, that's one of the biggest downsides of it. But but people don't understand that that once you allow fear of failure to get a grip of you and you start 
becoming more concerned and, and your default characteristic is negative avoidance, in other words, whatever happens, I don't want to make a mistake, then what happens is you drop back in your comfort zone because you won't do anything that you're not 100% sure about. And, and that's where, you, you know, I really worry. Kids don't have that fear of failure, which is why they're able to learn and, and have a go at stuff more easily. As we get older, our natural protection seems to be that we, we, we do become fearful of not, not performing. So therefore, we don't push the envelope. We don't get into the ugly zone. We don't get into the area where there's any doubt of whether or not we can perform. We, we, we stay out of that. And I think that's a real shame. Um, and so christening the ugly zone is the area that you, you find it difficult to match your intention. I hope um, that I can take adults there as well. And for the physios out there, I'm optimistic there might be a segue between the ugly zone and uh, injury rehab or getting back from an injury and a setback. Um, is there any ways that you'd advise physios or coaches to encourage athletes to embrace the ugly zone and the challenge that they're in at these times? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if a person is injured and, and you know, you hear, hear people, you know, they say, well, I'm injured, you know, I've got six weeks, it's probably, and, you know, I can't wait to get back. You know, there's a lot of things you can actually say, well, hang on a minute, you know, okay, you're injured, all right, but what can you do now that you couldn't have done when you were playing that would have actually helped? And it really, you should be saying is, okay, um, I, I got injured, okay, but um, I'm going to be better than I was before. And, and, and that was the mantra that I used with Wilkinson when he was coming back on his rehab from a, a knee reconstruction, that we, we sat down and, and we looked at another way of kicking, a completely different way of kicking, completely different way of centering and all the rest of it. And, and our whole um, mantra was, OK, we're going to be better than we were before. And that was it. That was the end of it. And our whole whole thing was never to get back, but to go beyond. And it was ugly and it, and it was massively challenging. Um, uh, but I think him and I both look back and actually say, do you know, that was a, a, a very fertile term, uh, time of learning. Um, and uh, it, it, I, I, for one, if I had it again, would do things differently um, in that that's a sort of a indication of how much I've learned since working with, with Wilkinson. Yeah. So I guess the injuries are an opportunity to do different things, but also uh, it sounds like uh, an, an area where you can get an understanding that you, your, your previous trajectory maybe wouldn't have given you about your performance. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I'm aware you've got a book called the pressure principle that you've mentioned. Um, can you tell us, you know, what is it about and who should be reading it within sport or which professionals, you know, would benefit from reading it? Well, according to people that have read it, everybody should read it. <laughs> and that's really, really crazy. It's, it's about the whole thing about pressure and, and, the, and the function of process versus outcome. There's a lot of stuff in there. And in fact, you know, since I've written it, I, I get people coming up and asking me, you know, I, I've read that. I, I'm reading it now for the third time. And it still resonates with me, you know, which is probably 
I, I couldn't ask for a better accolade, really, that, that people read it and then reread it. There's a friend of mine who, who coaches um, the fast bowling unit for the ECB, and, and he said he's, he reads it and reads it and reads it. Um, and he keeps coming back to it, particularly the chapter on language, the building of the affirmations, um, the whole idea of, of actually working out your pressure. You, you know, how do you perform under pressure and how you get your mindset in the right way and so on. Um, and and I, I, as I say, originally it was, you know, it was the it was me reflecting on on what I did and why I did it. And I, I, I dedicated the book to all those who think they can't because it, it was kind of I was hoping that the book would open some some, um, uh, if you like, mental doors to things where people say, Do you know, what? I, I reckon I could do this. So I, I deal with anxiety and, and I look at language and, and then I. I, I suppose you could call it coaching, but I don't call it coaching. I deal with the whole, whole concept of managing learning, that actually um, asking questions and looking at what you do slightly differently instead of looking for the instruction or the quick fix is actually much better. And then, of course, if you're looking at learning, you have to look at the, the balance of implicit and explicit learning. You know, how much information do you need? Or can you do it by conditioning uh, and just changing the environment in which you work, which is what they do with dolphins? Um, and then, obviously, the, the big thing was the um, behavior match, where I looked at the different types of training, of repair on technique, training, and, and then match. Uh, and then the whole issue of the of the learning environment and how do you create that and and, and what it actually means for, di for different people. And then uh, I suppose really recognizing that we all have challenges, one of which is sensory shutdown and how uh, people can delay the impact of that. Uh, and, and then the final bit was really just putting it all together and actually trying to get, okay, so if you can get all this right, What's your what's your tool for actually performing under pressure? So it, it was sort of those were the sort of the areas and, and actually the chapters. And it wasn't written in a way to, you know, do subjects. It was actually to conf uh, to confront issues that people have and, and, and then cross reference it with, if you like, some of the more traditional academic uh disciplines but i didn't want it to be a textbook of abc um i really wanted it to be a discussion on okay so how do we perform under pressure and th and these are the sorts of areas we need to look at and is it is the book um good for athletes themselves to read or is it more of a oh no no absolutely everybody everybody if there's a common understanding it, it makes a massive difference it really does yeah uh, i think that if the if the athlete reads it first, the the, the 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 coach needs to get hold of it pretty quickly. Yeah, and you also run a um, like a kind of journal and uh, performance program, the No Limits program. How does how does that work? Well, that's um uh, up until this year, I used to provide uh, do a performance diary, and the performance diary. Um, you know, it was a, a normal like a file effects diary, but a lot of stuff in the front of it about um, 
uh, resetting, setting your goals, how do you do it, monitoring your physical attributes, the temperature and all that sort of stuff, uh, heart rate and all. And, and each year I tried to get better and better at it. And, and what was happening was the, and, and as I read, the paper that I was churning out with drafts and final drafts and then going to the printers and all the rest of it, it became it became very wasteful and actually very expensive. So what we've done now is produce a no limits performance journal. And and the journal is, if you like, the the framework. But when somebody uh, buys the journal, they can they can buy it online from from Dare. Um, once they bought it, Dare send them a bespoke login. And instead of having a whole load of stuff at the front, we we have produced a, a, um, a myriad of um, performance tutorials. So every part of the journal, you know, like three things every day. How do you do a snapshot? How do you manage the snapshot? Whole issue of resetting. What happens if you miss a day? All of those things are all covered. And, and what we're doing is we're adding on it all the time. So the journal as a tool um, where you still handwrite in it, because I believe that handwriting, because I want you and the athlete to really, really relive the bits of their life or their performance that went well. You know, it. I, I think we... I think the first thing that a lot of people do when they assess their performance is actually look at the mistakes and, and things that didn't go well. And I think you should go the other way around. I think you should look at what went well, what went well and why, so you can repeat it. And then if you had that game, performance, event, whatever it was, again, what would you have done differently? Now, if you if you tackle it like that, that's a very non-judgment way of looking at it. it. You can still be brutally honest and the result of your sort of own personal inquiry can still be brutal. All right. You're not hiding from anything, but you're looking at it from a different point of view. Um, so th this this whole journal helps people make that adjustment. Um, so we look at the number, you know, for example, the, the hygiene factors, you know, the number of sleep hours, the sleep quality, morning heart rate, your weight and so on. And then at the end of the day, you look at your food, your hydration and your mood. And one of the things that we, we ask everybody to do is just to write down three good things that happen every day. At the end of the day, what are the three good things that have happened today? And what's interesting is it's actually modeled on behavior change. That if you get into the habit of doing that, you'd be amazed how your days change. You know, people can tell you straight away the things that didn't go well. And sadly, those are the things that are in the forefront of their mind. And I don't I don't want to hear it only because people are in a better mental state if they keep recalling what went well and what they want to repeat rather than beat themselves up over the mistakes and what they want to avoid.
I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of crossover from that, not only for athletes, but to anybody. Can Could a coach or a, or a therapist or a doctor involved in sport, could they use it as well? Yeah, anybody who feels they want to get better. I mean, what it's really useful for is somebody that's got a profession, like a therapist, a physio or something like that. And, you know, they might be a runner, you know, a, a good social runner or they're training for the London Marathon. This would be a perfect tool for them to, to set about that program and, you know, be what, what I call productive about their own interpretation of what they're doing in work. And we, so we've mentioned the book and we've mentioned the No Limits program. Um, is there anything else that listeners should be aware of that you've got coming up in the pipeline? I've got, a, I've got another book coming. Um, I wouldn't like to venture when it would be, be out there, but it's, it's actually, it's along the names. It's actually saying that there really are no limits. And essentially, it's giving people the tools to have a mindset that says, I can, there's no limits at my own margin. And that's a really important thing. I'm not saying that you can, you know, beat Usain Bolt. What I am saying, you can get faster than you are now, whoever you are. And, and if I can teach a 78-year-old uh, lady to play golf and to be captain of a local club and, and infuse about just the, the glory of being outdoors and involved in something that is all-consuming mentally, then I'm sure there must be millions of other people that could do the like. Of course. And where can people follow your activities online? Are you are you big on social media at all? And I'm I'm probably not very good at social media, but I'm I'm on um, Instagram and Twitter. Um, I I I do get um, nudges from from people that sponsor me that I ought to do more. I I I don't. Um, I feel I tr I try and do things that. I genuinely want to share with fellow professional coaches and athletes that hopefully might be um, a bit interesting or, you know, just, oh, yeah, that's a good point or something like that. Um, I, I, I don't take a picture of my breakfast and put it online. Yeah. And what, what's your uh, what, are, what are the sort of social media handles? How, where do people search you? Um, just, I think it's all red Dave. Uh, um, and it's just Dave all red, Dave dot all red, I think on, uh, on both Twitter and, um, uh, Instagram. Cool. And I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So people yeah. can find it. Um, yeah. well, Dave, I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. And from my perspective, um, having been around you in person, but not spoken to you, this conversation is definitely 10 years late for me. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on today and, and sharing your wisdom on high performance. Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Dave for coming on today's show and providing us with a very unique approach and insight into coaching athletes. Anything mentioned in this episode, you'll be able to find in the show notes available at informperformance.com. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at informpod. Thanks for listening to today's episode and we'll catch you in the new year.